art to listen to Grant's story. And what I love about that story is uh, just the power of childlike faith, where I'm just going to pray for a baby sister, and then God delivering on that is so, so cool. We love baptism here, and today, actually, we're going to talk all about baptism today, and so that's where we're heading, but I want to say welcome to all of you here, whether you're new or you've been a long-time attender of Crossroads. I'm glad that you are here. I also want to welcome those of you joining us online, Crossroads uh, Live, YouTube, Facebook, the app, wherever you may be joining us today. Today, we are starting a brand new series called The Weird things that Christians do, because let's be honest, the church is kind of weird. And there's some things that make us distinct and different, and that's okay. That's, that's actually good. It, it should be that way. Although, as we look through the 2,000 years of church history, there's things that the church does, if we we're just honest, is just weird. From things like baptism to drinking Jesus's blood, that's like right out of the Twilight series, isn't it? To singing together in a room that nowhere else in culture, nowhere else in the world do we do this outside of the church. And so as we were putting together this series and thinking through it, uh, we looked at it and we said, you know what, there's been so many new people who've come to Crossroads in this last year. Since January 1, we've had so many new faces and new people come to Crossroads. In fact, there was a weekend in May that we had so many first-time guests that if you were a long-time Crossroads person here and you looked around the room and you went, you know what, I'm not sure I know anybody. You were probably right. That's how many first-time guests we had at Crossroads. And so instead of just assuming that we all know why we do what we do, we thought we'd take a couple of weeks just to talk through some of the weird things that we do because here's the deal, that some of the weirdest things that we do are actually some of the most important things that we do. Let me just say that again for you. That some of the weirdest things that we do are some of the most important things that we do. They're not haphazard, uh, they are intentional, and ultimately they're really good. And the more that we learn to embrace the weirdness of our faith, the more engaged in our faith we'll become, the more engaged in Jesus we'll become, and the more engaged in the church we'll become. Whether this is your first time in the church or whether you've been a long-time person of Crossroads Church. And so today, we get the opportunity to talk about baptism. And let's be uh, real, when it comes to baptism, this is weird, isn't it? I mean, nowhere else in the world do you intentionally in full clothing, get in a tank of water, and then trust that someone's going to push you under the water and hold you down and bring you back up, right? I mean, like nowhere else in the world do we do that. And what makes baptism even more weird is that while all Christian churches seem to think that baptism is a pretty big deal, we all do it a little bit differently, don't we? So when it comes to like the Baptists, if you grew up Baptist or if you visit a Baptist church, like we're a Baptist church, then you probably saw what you saw today where somebody got in their clothes and was submerged completely into the water and then brought back up. But let's say you visited a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church that you would probably experience a, a pastor or a priest holding a water pitcher, and then they just dump that pitcher over your head like it's a hot summer day on the July 4th. Or maybe you've you've visited a Catholic church, or you've been invited to a Catholic baptism where they uh, baptized an infant. And so you look at it, and it's like, man, some churches do babies, other churches only do adults. And so you look at this, and it's like so weird. In fact, one of the regular conversations that we get to have with young mothers around here is those who call to get their baby baptized. That, that usually goes like this, that a young mom calls us and she asks if we would be willing to baptize their, their baby, her baby. And we start asking questions and, and what we find out is, is that they don't really attend Crossroads, they don't call Crossroads home, but they want to make sure that the child is in good with God. Like, what if something tragic happens to my baby? I want to make sure my baby's in good with God. 
And so as we're walking through this and talking with them, it's kind of this interesting moment or space that we find ourselves in because this person really isn't interested in believing what we believe or really even doing what we do. But there's like this superstitious nature around baptism that every adult, every parent, wants their baby like, you know, poured holy water over them. So just in case something bad happens to my baby, that they'll be good with God. And so today... We're taking some of the weirdness out of baptism. That's my goal. And at the same time, I want to convince as many of you who are believers as I can to enter into the waters of baptism. Now, when it comes to baptism, the reason that every single Christian church seems to make a big deal about baptism is because not only is it this like religious superstition, it's not, but actually something that Jesus himself commanded of us. That near the end of Jesus' life, he's looking at his disciples and he makes this one statement that's so famous that it becomes really the kind of the rallying cry for every, for every church from here forward. If you've been around the church, you're probably familiar with this passage. It comes out of Matthew uh, chapter 28 and verse 19. It's this. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, there's our word, them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded of you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That in church world, we call this the Great Commission. Commission just means task or assignment. That when Jesus is wrapping up his ministry on this earth, he says, here's my assignment to you. That anywhere there is a church, anytime people gather in my name, embracing my name and the message that I proclaimed and stood for, I want you to carry on this mission that I started by making disciples of mine. And when they profess, when they believe, when they trust, in me and repent of their sins, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gives us this like formula that that's the way they were baptized. We're not just making this stuff up, but in reality, this is the way that was given to Jesus, to us by Jesus himself. It's that intentional. Now, it's because of this verse that every Christian church baptizes people. Like this is the one verse in all of the Bible that we agree on. After this, it's the wild, wild west, all right? But this one verse is the one that we all agree on as churches. And so after it gets a little bit wild, the reason that we all agree is because leaders, pastors, priests, church leaders in general, we understand and we take seriously Jesus's command to lead people in relationship with him into the faith and then to get them baptized. So, very simply, the reason that we baptize people here at Crossroads Church is because Jesus said so. That's why we do what we do. But we wanna go actually deeper than that today. And so I wanna take a few moments to actually walk us through what does it mean to be baptized? What does baptism mean, all right? And in helping us understand and really to take out some of the weirdness of baptism, it might be helpful if I teach you a little bit of Greek, all right? So we're gonna get a little bit nerdy today. Anytime you open up your Bible and you see the word baptism, what you're seeing is what we call a transliteration, not a translation of a word, all right? Now, let me explain what that means a little bit. Most of the time when you open up your Bibles and you read your English Bible, what you're reading is a one-for-one -one translation from the Greek in the New Testament to the English. And so there's words like this. So anytime you see the word servant in your 
English Bible in the New Testament, it's being translated from the word doulos. Doulos just means slave or servant. That's literally what the word means. And so it's a one-to-one translation. Or let me give you another one. Anytime that you read in the New Testament the word Lord, Lord comes from the Greek word kurios. Now you might be looking at that and go, Matt, that looks like kupios, not kurios. If we're going to nerd out on the Greek, let's go all the way. Anytime you see a P, that sounds like an R in Greek, all right? So Lord is kurios. So anytime you see Lord or master, it's coming from the word kurios. Now in the Old Testament, we have one-to-one translations, largely from the Hebrew, a little bit of Arabic, but that's mainly when you open up your Bibles, that's what you see is one-to-one translations like we just see there. But there are Bible translators did something a little bit weird with the word baptism. They didn't just translate it one-to-one, but they actually transliterated it. And it looks like this, that anytime you see the word baptism, it comes from the word baptizo in the Greek. And even if you don't know Greek, you can see what they did, right? They just took the Greek letters and they made them English letters, and basically they made up a brand new word. They made up a brand new word. Now, this brand new word oftentimes in our culture, has become a word that is largely associated with religion and religious activity, which is fine. But when we go back to the first century, when we go back to like Jesus' time, the word baptism wasn't actually a religious word. It was actually a word that literally meant to plunge, to soak, to dip, or to wash. And so if you were like a Greek parent back in the day, and you were around dinner time, you would look at your kids and you would say, go baptizo your hands for dinner. Go wash your hands for dinner. We actually have in the first century a recipe for how to make pickles that uses the word baptizo, all right? Now, now before we read it, I just need you to know that I hate pickles, all right? Like they are from Satan. My wife loves pickles, so we have a lot of tension in our relationship around pickles. And when it comes to my wife and I, we have a rule that if she eats a pickle, she has to brush her teeth three times before I'll kiss her, okay? So that has nothing to do with any of this, just so you know who your pastor is. All right, here it is. Here's the first century recipe. Bapto, to dip quickly the cucumber in water and then baptizo, that is to immerse and let it soak in vinegar. And then the recipe reads, and the pickle will be filled with the Holy Spirit and will begin to speak in tongues. (laughs) It doesn't really say that, I just made that last part up, but you get the point, right? It's not a religious word, it's an everyday regular word that meant to plunge, to soak, to dip, to wash. And so the question then becomes for us, How did it go from a word that meant to plunge or to wash to this religious word in the way that we use it today? Why did our translators decide to translate the word baptizo and to really transliterate it instead of translate it? Well, it has everything to do with a guy named John, who we know in church world as John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist shows up in all four of our gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter one, we'll be there in a second. But if you've been around church world, you probably know or maybe remember that John the Baptist is like the wild, weird, crazy cousin of Jesus. Like he is an odd duck. And it's like the gospel writers go out of their way to really uh, show us how weird John is. Like they tell us that he dresses in camel hair and then he has this like big old cowboy belt buckle that everybody recognizes and that his diet consists of locusts like bugs and honey. That's all he eats. And so weird, crazy 
John, the cousin of Jesus, shows up. Now, just on a side note, John the Baptist is one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is true. Because just think, if you're trying to write like this glorious, glamorous story of the Son of God named Jesus, you would not include crazy, weird duck John. Like, you just wouldn't do it. And yet we do. The gospel writers do. And not only does John make it into the story, he actually plays a significant role in Jesus' life and a significant role in our life when it comes to understanding why we do this weird thing called baptism. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 1. Starting in verse 4, here's what Mark writes. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going to him, next verse, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here's crazy weird John. And one day he sets up a shop right in the Jordan River, not too far away from Jerusalem. And he starts proclaiming this message. And as he's proclaiming this message, he's actually making this message with a promise from God. He basically comes in and says, if you would be willing to repent of your sin, then God will forgive that sin. Now, if this wasn't too weird, that all throughout the scriptures, we see that that when it comes to this message of repentance, that this was a normal thing for teachers, for prophets. There was always a message of repentance because if you read the Old Testament, the Jews messed up a lot. Like they had a lot of sin. And so the message is always repent, repent, repent. But then John adds something to the repentance. As he's calling for this repentance, he says, if you are serious, then I want you to demonstrate your repentance by accepting a ceremonial washing in the Jordan where people were plunged into the water. And John uses the word baptizo. Now, If you think that baptism is a little weird today, like in John's time, it was really weird. See, a ceremonial washing like this was reserved for those who wanted to become Jewish. Now, anytime in the scriptures that you read about non-Jews, we call them Gentiles. If you're not a Jewish person, you're a Gentile, scripturally speaking. That when it came to Gentiles, that if a Gentile wanted to become Jewish, they had to go through two ceremonial rites of passage in order to be considered Jewish, in order to be a part of Judaism. The first one, if you were a male, was circumcision, which meant that there wasn't a lot of guys signing up to be Jews, all right? That's just the truth. There wasn't wasn't a line of guys coming up, but let's just say you got circumcised. Then the second rite of passage that you would do is a ceremonial washing that was privately done, not publicly, but privately done. And what it was was a picture in your life that you were leaving your Gentile ways behind you And you're now fully immersing yourself in Jewish culture, that you're becoming Jewish. You're following Judaism. So John shows up on the scene, and he starts proclaiming this message of repentance. And he says, as he's speaking this out, part of this is he's speaking to the Jews. And these Jews start believing this message. And he says, Jews, if if you really believe in this message, then I want you to get washed publicly which was weird because Jews didn't do that. Jews were already Jewish because they were born Jewish. You didn't have to get ceremonially washed to become more Jew. They were already God's people. But then what was even more weird is that this was never done publicly. It was always done privately. Well, apparently, there were a lot of people who were taking John's message of repentance to heart. They were repenting of their sin, and then the Jewish people were doing the unimaginable. They were actually, they were actually publicly identifying 
that they believed in this message of repentance by entering into the Jordan waters and being plunged into them as a ceremonial washing. And as such, people started to refer to John as John the washer, John the Baptist. And so, was what was born with John the Baptist was this religious ceremony that when someone repents of their sins and identifies with that message, they are plunged into water. And because of this, the Bible and in the religious writings that follow, that we see this word baptism used in a religious way, transliterated for us, not translated, but transliterated for us in understanding where we see it in no other literature in all the world. But that's not where John stops. John actually goes on, and in Mark chapter 7, he starts talking about someone who's going to come after him, and he says this, and he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. Like, like I have baptized you with water, John says, but the one who comes after me, look, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And John, all of a sudden, as part of this message of repentance, starts speaking to the people about this mighty one who's going to come after him, one that is way more worthy than him. And then after a few months, the mighty one actually shows up. Look at it from the account of, of John's gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, Then the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like, this is the one that I've been waiting for. This is the one that we've been talking about. And so Jesus shows up in the Jordan River where John's baptizing, and he walks up to John and he says, baptize me. And John goes, are you crazy? Like, they think I'm the weird one. Like, like I'm not even worthy to tie your sandals. How can I baptize you? And Jesus presses in a little bit more on John because for Jesus to get baptized affirmed the message of repentance that John had been preaching. It affirmed the declaration that God is up to something new. It confirmed that John had been preaching about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the worlds. That's what repentance looks like. And with that, John plunges Jesus into the water. Back to Mark chapter 1, verse 10. And when he came up, out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. This is a pretty big moment in scripture that Jesus is there and, and all of a sudden this booming voice comes out, verse 11, and a voice comes out from heaven saying, you're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And as all of this is going, just like John said, the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove onto Jesus. I come and baptize with water, but the one after me comes with the Holy Spirit. And from this moment on, in the New Testament, anytime, anytime someone saw Jesus for who he was, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who came to forgive the sins of the world, would be publicly, ceremonially washed that they would be baptized as a public symbol that they identified with Jesus in the message that he proclaimed, leaving their own life behind, just like the Gentile, leaving their own life behind and walking in the newness of life that Jesus offered through the power of the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist gets this whole thing started. Jesus follows by being baptized by, Jesus, uh, by John, affirming the message of repentance. 
And then Jesus' followers carry it forward with anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and the message he proclaims. Then as Jesus is wrapping up his whole ministry, he looks at his disciples and he says, you know this thing that we've been doing the last three years? You know how we've got all this started and, and what we're doing? I want you to continue it on after I leave. That I want you to go into all the world. I want you to tell every single person you know. I want every single person you encounter. I want them to know about me. I want you to make disciples. And when they profess, when they trust, when they believe in me, I want you to ceremonially wash them. I want you to baptizo them, teaching them to command everything that I've taught in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what we just walked through is like a lot, right? It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. So let me just make like three statements so that we're all on the same page. Statement number one, that baptism is a public expression of my inward reality. That's what baptism means. Baptism is a public expression of my inward reality. Baptism is where I publicly declare my repentance, the repentance of my heart. Now, part of my life I spent in the South. My family's from the South. I, I lived in the South for a while. And when you go to the South, there's still such a thing as cultural Christianity. If you're not familiar with cultural Christianity, we don't see it a lot in Colorado, but cultural Christianity is basically because you were born into a Christian family, you therefore are Christian. And so I spent a lot of time watching people who entered into the waters of baptism but had zero repentance for their sin. It was just something that you did because culturally that's what you do. It was like this superstitious ritual that took place. And yet all throughout the scriptures, what we see is that to be baptized is to repent. That baptism symbolizes us walking out of the wilderness of our sins and into the new life that we have with Jesus, which leads us to the second thing I want to make sure that we're clear on. That baptism is my public identification that I stand with Jesus. That baptism is the public showing that I identify with Jesus, that I've given my life to him. What I was I no longer am. I'm, I'm leaving behind and I'm walking in the newness of life with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That I'm going public with my faith. I'm, I'm going public with my faith by associating with Jesus, which by the way, is the reason that we actually submerge you in this tub. It's an act of identification with Jesus. That, that when we plunged Grant, when you saw that on the video, and we plunged Grant into the waters, what we're saying is that you're dying to yourself. And when we pull Grant up, we're, we're pulling him up in the hope of the resurrection with Jesus, that this is Grant's identification with Jesus, his death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection. That's what makes this so important, that I'm identifying in my faith with Jesus, which takes us to the third thing, that baptism is a demonstration or demonstrates a commitment to my surrendering to God's desire for my life. Listen, many people get confused when we talk about baptism and they believe that baptism is like a precondition of my salvation. Like, like going into the waters of baptism is what saves me. Let me be very clear. This water does not save you. Only Jesus saves you. And we only have to look no further than the cross to understand this. Now, one of the most beautiful pictures of, of Jesus' story is that when he's on the cross, he's, he's flanked on either side by thieves. Do you remember this? And as he's there, one of the thieves strikes up a conversation in their, in their dying breath. 
And what's made so clear to us is that this thief actually sees who Jesus is, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who came to take away his sins. And right there on the cross in his dying breath, this thief believes. He believes. And Jesus, in this intimate moment, looks at the thief hanging on the cross and he says to him, he says, today you will be with me in glory. Today you will be with me in paradise. Listen, if baptism was necessary, Jesus would have been like, somebody hurry, like get the hose and splash this guy. Like he's gonna die, right? But that didn't happen. Jesus didn't do it. And the reason that Jesus doesn't do it is because baptism is not a condition of salvation, but rather evidence of your salvation. That we have repented of our sins, that we've put our faith in Jesus and we are surrendering our lives to him. That Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans chapter 10, verse verse 9. It says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. That oftentimes when it comes to baptism, it's helpful for me to think of it like like a wedding ring. When it comes to this wedding ring, wearing a wedding ring, say that three times fast, does not symbolize... Well, let me say it this way. Wearing a wedding ring does not make me legally married to my wife, Sarah, right? What this wedding ring symbolizes is that I have made a covenant commitment to my wife, Sarah. And I am no more or less married when I am wearing this ring than when I take it off. That I've still made that covenant commitment to Sarah, regardless of whether the picture can be seen or not. Baptism is the same way. Baptism is not a precondition of your faith in Jesus. Baptism demonstrates that you have faith in Jesus and that you have surrendered to him. This is, by the way, why we only baptize people after they believe. If if you get baptized before you were converted, before you trusted in Jesus, that's fine. Say like as an infant, maybe you were baptized in an infant. That's fine, but that is not a demonstration of your faith. That's not a demonstration of your repentance. What it's a demonstration of is your parents' faith, which again is good and fine, but it's not a demonstration of your faith. And so as such here at Crossroads, we don't argue mode. We don't argue whether you've been submerged, poured, dipped, plunged, hit by a fire hydrant. We don't care, all right? What we do care about is that when you made that commitment to Jesus, when you were baptized, that you were a believer, that you had repented of your sins and believed in Jesus alone for your salvation, and you were committed to following him for all of your life, for all of your life. And so that picture that we have of baptism is so beautifully wrapped up in what we celebrate every week with communion. See, the story of communion goes all the way back to Exodus. And if you are a church person, then you know the story that the people of Israel have been enslaved by Egypt for 400 years. And God is doing this miraculous work and he's gonna bring them out of Egypt. And as he's gonna bring them out of Egypt, he does this this miracle and he tells them that on this night, I'm gonna deliver you. And he says, here's the way it's gonna work, that I'm sending the death angel in. And what you need to do is you need to take a lamb and you need to break that lamb's body. And you need to take the blood of the lamb and you need to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorposts over your family. And whoever has blood on the doorposts of the family, that family will be spared as the death angel rolls over. That you will be redeemed, that you will be saved. 
And so sure enough, the Israelites go through this and, and, and they do just what God tells them to do. And the death angel moves in that night and, and Israel is saved because of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. We fast forward some 1,300 years and Jesus is in what we call the Last Supper with his disciples and he takes the bread and he says, this bread represents the lamb of God. My body broken for you. And this blood... Sprinkle it on the doorposts of your hearts because it is the forgiveness of your sins. And in this, we have this beautiful picture of the gospel. See, we've talked a lot about identity today and to identify with the message of Jesus. And the reality is, is that identity is everywhere in our culture, isn't it? that everybody's looking to identify with something and there's a lot of screaming going on. Either you're getting screamed at because culture, you know, uh, doesn't like the identity that you've chosen or you're being screamed at because you're a hypocrite trying to live out this identity. And yet when it comes to the message of the gospel, when it comes to the message of Jesus, this is the only identity given to us that is received, not achieved. See, the identity that we have in God is that we're children of God. And when we believe, confess our sins, that we become a child of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That Jesus is a person who, who stepped out of glory and into this world. And as he stepped into this world, he, he gave his life on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin and for my sin. That it doesn't matter what we've done in the past or, or how bad we've done, been. That your righteousness is not given to you because of what, you done, what you've done. Your righteousness is because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we're told whoever believes in that, whoever trusts in that, whoever professes the name of Jesus will be saved. Which means that the moment that you trust Jesus as your savior, that you become a child of God, and that God loves you today as perfectly today as he will 500 billion years from now, when you're perfect and in heaven, with him, that God loves you as his child, regardless of, of who you are or what you've done or not done, regardless of how worthy you think you are to be called a child of God. And this is so different from what the world preaches to us, isn't it? The world preaches that, that our identity is performance-based. The world teaches that our identity is the part that we play, the role that we play in this life. And let's be honest, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? It's a lot of pressure to carry that weight. As a believer in Jesus, you have an identity that is received, not achieved. That God's approval of you does not go up and down based on how well you perform. You trust Jesus, you confess your sins. You are a child of God, period. That's the gospel. It's what we celebrate in baptism. It's what we celebrate every week when we do communion together. And so if you haven't had the opportunity in your life to pray that prayer, to believe in Jesus in your heart, to confess it with your mouth, I wanna give you that chance now. I'm gonna pray. And just in the quietness of your heart, maybe you can just whisper it out loud. I'm just gonna pray for you. You can just echo my words. All right, everybody, if you would, just bow your head. Father, we come to you on this day. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner, that I've spent my entire life running away from you. And Lord, on this day, I, I believe, I trust, I profess that you are the Son of God, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away my sins. And so God, I fall at the foot of the cross asking for your forgiveness, repenting of the life that I've lived. Lord, committing to you to turn away, Lord, from my own life and to follow you in the hope of new life through the resurrection. I call you Savior. Father, I'm so grateful, Lord, for those online and in this room at Fort Lupton who's praying that prayer right now. God, that you're speaking to their heart. You're drawing them in. God, we thank you for that. God, I pray for those who are here in this room who've maybe believed but have never entered into the waters of baptism, who've never publicly expressed their affiliation with you. God, I pray that you would give them courage to take that step. God, I pray for those of us who maybe decades ago were baptized, that we would that we were reminded anew today of the significance of the baptism in our life and that still, even maybe decades later, that we stand with you, that we are a child of God. God, for that, we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. So as we celebrate communion together, we remember those last moments in Jesus' life where he's sitting with his disciples, taking the celebration that they had for 1,300 years and then saying, this is my body broken for you. Remember me each time you eat. And so today we eat together. And then with the cup, he said, this is my blood spilled for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so today as we drink, we take comfort in the promise that our sins are forgiven. We're gonna continue in worship and uh, we're gonna do it in a couple of ways. If you need prayer today, we would love to pray for you. Online, you can just hit the button. We have people ready to pray for you. Here at Thornton, you can just make your way over under the sign to prayer. We'll have people there ready to pray for you. You can make your way over there anytime in the next 20 minutes. I'm gonna invite everyone, wherever you're at, to go ahead and to sing, to stand so that we can sing in celebration of what God's doing in our life together. <laughs>